0: Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Seta. We have a fantastic new episode for you today. But before we dive in, I'm thrilled to announce the return of Illuminate Live. Join us for a live podcast recording experience, along with tacos and tequila in Austin, Texas, during the Ortho Innovation Summit hosted by KLO and Custom Braces. So save the dates. February 29th through March 2nd, and reserve your spot now at kloandorthocom innovation innovationsummit. And as a dedicated podcast listener, check the show notes for exclusive Illuminate promo codes for both doctors and team members. We're looking forward to seeing you there. And now, without further ado, we're on to today's episode. Create a bravado of fake it till you
1: make it. The more you do this type of stuff, the more you realize that it's humility, not bravado, that really shows your experience and your skill set. So I always tell people you know, you want to face it
0: till you ace it. I'm Dr. Chris Setta, and I'm shining a light on the innovators of our profession. Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. On today's show, my guest is Dr. Neil Kravitz. Be a lighthouse in someone else's storm. While this quote didn't originate from our guest, it's one that he often shares in his lectures. The essence lies in the realization that we're all navigating personal struggles, often unseen by others. It's important to remember that we're all colleagues, not competitors, united by the common threads of humanity. In that light, today I'm honored to illuminate the journey of a highly respected orthodontist and innovative thought leader, Dr. Neil Kravitz. Practicing just outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia, Neil stands as a beacon within the profession. Renowned globally as a speaker, educator, and clinician, He currently holds the prestigious role of editor-in-chief for the Journal of Clinical Orthodontics, showcasing his commitment to advancing the specialty through scholarly contributions and leadership. As you'll hear on today's episode, Dr. Kravitz generously shares insights from the evolution of his career, candidly reflecting on early missteps and lessons learned. From the initial stages marked by a fake it until you make it mentality, Neil recounts his transformative journey towards embracing humility. Join us as Neil imparts his wisdom and inspires us all to face it until we ace it. This episode is filled with profound reflections, practical lessons, and hopefully a beacon of light for our colleagues navigating their own seas of uncertainty. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today, Neil? I'm doing great. Doing great. It's an honor to have you in town. Why don't you tell everyone where we're at? We are in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I am very excited to be here. Yeah, you uh, came into town last night uh, to the Sunshine City. Unfortunately, it's the rainy season here in July as we record this, so uh, it's a little rainy outside, hoping the sun pops out, but we're here at Coastal Creative Studios. So thrilled that you came down. Can't wait for the podcast today. So thank you again. Thank you. Yeah, and why don't you tell everyone what we're
1: drinking? Coffee. Yeah, black coffee over here, so getting a little caffeinated.
0: We are getting caffeinated. I have to give a shout out to uh, Bandit, one of my favorite coffee spots here in St. Pete's. I'm enjoying a cold brew. Neil enjoys his coffee black. Hopefully you like the roast. Yeah, fantastic. I know you're sort of like a coffee guy. Do you have a favorite coffee or an Nespresso or Starbucks? Yeah, we
1: have a little Nespresso machine in our house that you use pretty often, so. Pretty often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: How many cups a day would you say you are as a coffee drinker? Definitely a few. Definitely a few. few. Okay. As as much as you'll admit. Okay. Well, very good. I'm thrilled for the podcast today. We have lots of really interesting topics, maybe some provocative topics we'll talk about. We'll see what we get into. But I would love to talk about your involvement with the Journal of Clinical Orthodontics, the JCO. Congratulations on your recent role there. Thank you. We will be talking about your involvement with the AEO and CTECH. We're going to learn about some Kravitz pearls today, not just clinical pearls, but some life pearls, including rediscovering humility, which I think is a really great topic. Maybe we'll touch on some corporate orthodontics, virtual consults, maybe even airway. So, wow how's that for a teaser that's great (laughs) so before we get into all these topics neil i'd love to learn a little bit more about you did you grow up in virginia i know you practice there. yeah so my
1: parents uh, paul and leslie are still in the same home that i grew up with and i grew up in northern virginia right outside dc and i live right outside in georgetown in, in washington dc right now and my wife margaret we have three kids jack who is eight james who is six and edith who is three And we've really been in that area my whole life.
0: And that's such a beautiful area, Georgetown.
1: Yeah, I think growing up, I always thought I would be far away from home, maybe in New York City, but I've really loved living in Georgetown.
0: I think you refer to him as the original Dr. K, right? Your father. (laughs)
1: You know, he loves his job. I think I really got my work ethic from him. I don't think I've ever seen him miss a day of work in my life. And he's a dermatologist. He's still practicing. You know, I think when I was younger, I, I really thought I would like him to work less but he just loves being at work. He is very happy there. He will leave that office feet first. He's reduced the number of days that he works, but he's still working there and very happy as a dermatologist.
0: Gotcha. And did your mom stay home or was your mom working too? So
1: she was a social worker. She specialized in deaf and hard of hearing children. Our area in Northern Virginia had a huge population of deaf and hard of hearing children uh, because of Gallaudet University Mm -hmm. up in D.C. And so she had almost like a social working role and that was her specialty. That's kind of how she got into education. And she did it for about 40 years.
0: Oh, so cool. Now, did she teach you how to sign?
1: I can do food and bad words. That's about all I've retained. Um, yeah. I used to be fairly fluent, but I could be in an emergency. Yeah. But right now, it's just the basics.
0: It's become much more of a thing, right, with infants and you yeah. know, teaching yeah. them how to sign. So. Well, you
1: know, that was back then is that many of the parents refused to learn sign language. And it was very hard if they hmm. did have a child who was deaf or hard of hearing. So that's where her role at school came in.
0: Yeah, super interesting. So I know once you graduated high school, you went to the University of Columbia, right? Yeah. 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 Tell us about that.
1: That was great. I tell a funny story. Your junior year, you're able to do something called a days on campus where you can spend a night with a responsible student to see if this is the right school for you. I remember everything about it. It was a student who was taking his calculus exam. He wore an all-black trench coat, which I thought was, <laughs> this was this was before, obviously, The Matrix came up. I just thought this was the coolest kid. And I, and I told him, he goes, you know, if you're in New York City, what do you want to do? I go, you know, I love Chinese food. He's like, well, we're going to Chinatown. And we took the subway. We went down to Chinatown. It was the greatest experience. And no then, way. And then I was just sold. So I was very lucky to be able to go to Columbia. And uh, I always say that I was very lucky. I, I really hit the lottery. It was really a perfect school for me, helped me grow up a little bit. And it was just, I don't know if too many people love their school as much as I love mine.
0: Oh, that's awesome. And I understand that you're involved (laughs) with the football team too. Are these rumors true?
1: (laughs) They are. I was a very average kicker, (laughs) a very average place kicker, but I was on the team for four years and played for three of those years. And it was a great experience, some really good highs and some definitely some tough moments. But being a college athlete was so valuable in just learning how to toughen up and learning how to deal with life's hardships. So I really enjoyed it. I know you're still a big supporter of the Lions, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're big supporters. um, And you'd be amazed how many Columbia University uh, students who live in the area come to see me. And I even have a few of my old teammates come to see me as patients, which is very nice.
0: Awesome. Well, I have to ask you, what was your longest field goal? (laughs) It was in a game. Yeah, yeah.
1: it was a 46 yarder, uh, for the, for the win. Hey, that is amazing. <laughs> oh, guess, tell us that story. Well, I just had a great moment and a great day. And Who were you playing? I played Bucknell. And the rumor, though I don't think my father would admit to it, is that he was crying in the stands. So uh, <laughs> that is the rumor that gets passed around amongst our that family. That is
0: amazing. So after you graduated from Columbia, where'd
1: you head next? So I went to Penn. I spoke about this at the AEO. I was really torn between Penn and Harvard. I really loved both of them. But I had this incredible pull toward Penn, I really had this very emotional connection to the school, and it was a tough experience, but a good experience. And I'm very lucky to have gone to Penn for dental school.
0: Yeah. What was that emotional connection? Just you visited or did... Yeah.
1: Didn't... No, I think I tell kids this when they make decisions. I always tell people that emotional decision, whether it's school or relationships or, or jobs, you know, that emotional decision is so important. And I think you kind of know when you're at the next stop, whether that was the right place for you. And just when I was at Penn, I said, this is it. Everything that I wanted. I, there's a lot of similarities to Columbia, right? Mm-hmm. It's in the city. I liked that it was a school that was very proud of its dental program. It really... Penn has a strong graduate program. You know, not all the Ivy Leagues have strong graduate programs, but Penn does. And the dental school was one of the gems of their graduate schools.
0: Oh, very cool. Now, while you were there at Penn, did you know you wanted to be an orthodontist? No, I didn't really
1: know to the last minute. You know, we don't get a lot of orthodontic training in any school. And I loved all specialties. I had a really great class with Dr. Joe Gafari. I mean, what I remember most about the class was an announcement that was made when he was teaching about the attack on September 11th. We had a sprint evacuation from the school. So I, I remember everything about that class and being with Dr. Gafari, but I still try to keep up with him every so often but he was the reason I went into orthodontics. I loved it, but it was a little bit of a guess. I thought I was going to go into oral surgery, but I'm very lucky I went into orthodontics. It is the perfect profession for me. Oh, it is. I I don't think anybody likes their job more than I do.
0: Oh, that's amazing. So tell us where you set up your practice. So yeah, we are in uh, Northern Virginia, two places, one
1: place called South Riding, Virginia, and the other place is in Ashburn, Virginia. And these are very populated areas and uh, about 40 minutes from where I grew up, a little bit less than an hour from where I live. And they're they're great. They are areas where there are a lot of families, but also extended families live there. So it's not just a family that you will treat. They're brothers and sisters and cousins. Everybody kind of lives in this community, which is very interesting. So yeah. uh, one start brings many.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Now, you guys are sort of, I think... Maybe northwest of the metro D.C. area, right? Yeah, yeah. Near Dulles Airport, maybe? So both offices are very close to Dulles Airport. We kind of split the two. Gotcha. Okay.
1: Well, very cool. So tell us how you first got involved with the JCO, Neil. Being involved with the JCO is a dream come true. It is is our largest clinical orthodontic journal in the world. And I started writing as a resident. I actually started writing uh, pearls or short articles as a resident. And as you write for these journals, they start giving you more responsibilities and they start asking you to be a reviewer, to review other articles. And my role started to increase, I think around 2016, I was asked to be a associate editor and we focused on the pearls and then the chief editor a few years later.
0: Congratulations. Thank you so you much. You know, I was looking back through the archives and I think you even did a period like of book reviews, right? Where yes. you yeah. like Yes, yeah. that's
1: so one of the things that we'll do whenever we bring someone onto the board, we will have them do book reviews and kind of get them used to writing. You know, writing, it takes time. I really still am learning how to be a writer. I hope I do a good job. I try to write in a way that I like to read, which is simple and crisp. But you really need to keep writing. And the way to practice is just keep writing and writing. So I really want to get more U.S. orthodontists published. But that is an area that they need to work on is submitting articles. So I tell them, just start. And as you start to write your papers, they will get better with each submission.
0: I've done a couple small programs. Some great articles, yeah. GCO. We love your articles. But you know, I'm someone that would like to write more. So besides using your own voice, are there any other tips or maybe who are your favorite writers sure. or that are on? An well answer? there's
1: different things that I like from different writers. So yeah. you know, on the way here we had a great talk about our good friend Jonathan Nicosis. You know, Jonathan is a beautiful writer and uh, obviously Lyle Johnston is probably one of the most beautiful writers. They really have a mastery of a language almost the way if you had a book author, I used to like when I was in college, Elizabeth Wurzel, I, I like the way she used words. but you'll have an author that you might like the way they write or their strength of vocabulary. and you read their work and read their work a lot and then start to write and try to incorporate similar type sentences. but it just takes practice and you just have to keep writing and it'll get easier. And if I tell you, if I take a few months off from writing, it's hard to pick it back up again. So write, write often, and you will get better with the skill.
0: Yeah. So once someone submits a paper, I'm just curious, like behind the scenes, how does that work? So I imagine it goes to, is it single editors or multiple people that review the paper? Sure, right. So
1: this is obviously a very refereed journal. So the paper is going to be blinded when we send it out and I will look at all the articles and I will do a quick overview. Sometimes it's a paper that will be immediately rejected, but then we're going to send it to a few reviewers. Mm-hmm. And we also try to help the paper out. So if it's a paper that I think has potential, we'll say, listen, you're close on the topic here, but you need to make some revisions. Sure. But it's hard. Not everybody is willing to do it. Not everybody wants to go back to the table. Writing is a hard skill. It is a skill that requires a credible humility. You will get rejected. I still get rejected when I submit articles. When I do research, I'll do research for two, three, four years and think I have a surefire acceptance in the highest academic journal. And if it gets rejected, it's heartbreaking. You really almost get a little sad, but that's part of the process. And we had a great talk about the legend, David Sarver, on the way here. Mm -hmm. But uh, I remember submitting an article, and you don't know who your reviewer is, but I knew this was reviewed by David because it was (laughs) a very, very strong review that I got back. The paper ended up getting accepted eventually after I made revisions, but I saw him at the AEO. And he said to me, you know, I reviewed your paper. I said, I know, David, I know you reviewed my paper. And he goes, I know I was hard. But just remember, profit does it to me when I submit papers to him. Wow. And and a great lesson of just writing requires humility. You have to accept criticism. So I think when I started, and I'd really submit these papers right away. But nowadays, I really make sure people have a chance to look at them and give their feedback. And my favorite line that a friend told me is, Your paper is not edited until you've deleted your favorite sentence. So that's my favorite line (laughs) that I always tell people.
0: That's a great quote. You know, I'm curious. Recently, I downloaded ChatGPT. I don't know if you have that, I haven't got it that app, but <laughs> yeah. it's sort of basically yeah. like an yeah. AI app, yeah. and yep. it's surprisingly good. I'm curious like how that's going to affect writing like in the future. And... It's
1: going to, yeah. Right now, it hasn't affected our journals just yet. It's definitely going to be a big part of what we'll have to work with.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Well, congratulations. I believe you're the fourth editor-in-chief succeeding Robert Kaim, Is that yes, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Any stories about Dr. Kime?
1: He's been awesome. We still talk maybe weekly and he has been so easy and helpful during this transition. This is my greatest professional honor. And I really have this like emotional connection to the journal. This is, I love teaching on clinical pearls. I love sharing clinical ideas. So this journal is really a perfect fit for me. And I really wanted to make sure I was doing it justice. And Dr. Kaim could not have made the transition easier. And I still lean on him heavily for advice. That's awesome. Yeah, he's been great.
0: Well, I want to mention, I am a JCO subscriber. I've subscribed since I've finished my program. I think it's a fantastic journal. Just love the content in there. Super clinically relevant. If people are interested in subscribing, I imagine they can go to the JCO website. Sure,
1: yes. On the website, I tell people I waived my salary as an editor to support the journal. And so I will be in this role completely voluntarily. The greatest gift someone could do if they like what I'm trying to do in the profession and how I'm teaching and how I'm trying to motivate and encourage. The greatest gift you could give to me would be subscribing to this journal. We are strong. We are growing. But, you know, we hope that continues.
0: When we come back in just a moment, we discuss Neil's involvement with Tech, the ABO, and Angle Society, as well as his top clinical and practice pearls. Stay with us. You're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast comes from the Aligner Intensive Fellowship. With a commitment to educate orthodontic specialists on all things aligners, the Aligner Intensive Fellowship is the most comprehensive aligner course in the world. Since 2017, over 5000 orthodontists have taken the course with a satisfaction rate above 90%. In 2023, the course has been reimagined and optimized with all brand new content. The Aligner Intensive Fellowship is also available at no cost to all orthodontic residents and full time faculty in the U.S. and Canada. For further details and course curriculum, please visit AlignerFellowship.com. Welcome back to our conversation with Dr. Neil Kravitz. Well, I'd love to dive into some pearls, but before we do, I do want to mention that you're part of a couple AO committees, C-Tech and CCon, and I believe you have a Facebook group, which I'm a yes, part of, the c yeah, Facebook absolutely. group. So when did you first get involved with C-Tech, and yeah, when did so, you start the Facebook group? So, yeah, so C-Tech is
1: the Committee on Technology. This is my seventh year, and this will be my last year on C-Tech. I've been the chair for the last two years, and it's run partially by Mindy Brothers, who is an incredible staff member for the yeah. AO. who I don't know if people could even imagine the amazing... Amount of work that she does. It's remarkable what she has done for the AEO and for this committee. But one of the great things this committee has done when I started, you know, it was really just a committee that did blogs on technology, but now it really has evolved into an educational group on all aspects of technology, but particularly 3D printing and in-house aligners. Yeah. So again, with the leadership of Mindy, they created a TechSelect website. So if you go onto the AO website, there is a separate site within that website called TechSelect, and it's really a library of videos on how to use in-house aligners, how to do 3D printing, how to maximize profit from those steps. It is remarkable. And you can actually even purchase your products through that site. Oh, that's super cool. Uh, yeah. And you'll get a maximum saving. So they've contract with the AAO, So the vendors have to give you the biggest savings. And even some of that money goes back to the AAO. So I actually built my 3D print lab going through TechSelect. So very cool. To lead yeah. By t- t- tell
0: us a little bit about your 3D print lab. I'd love to learn. Yeah.
1: About it. So a few years ago, I said, you know, certainly being part of TechSelect and Tech, I have to really get involved with 3D printing. And we have a huge Invisalign practice. About 25% of our office is Invisalign, but. We have a large volume practice, so that was a large number of patients, but we needed to incorporate in-house aligners. Now, I don't use in-house aligners as a replacement for Invisalign, and I don't encourage orthodontists to do that just yet, or at least if they do, to make sure they're being very candid with parents in the consult and not doing a bait and switch, not saying the word Invisalign, but delivering in-house aligners. Make sure they're saying these are in-office products. I use in-house aligners when I need to touch up a relapsed case or a patient who maybe did not wear their retainers, or maybe I had to get the braces off a little bit early because of decalcifications or root resorption. Mm -hmm. So I use my in-house aligners the way many people used Invisalign 5. It's been a huge part and you'll never go back. So, you know, when we started this a few years ago doing research with Invisalign, the idea of Invisalign as a tool for finishing and detailing was unheard of. It was, you start with Invisalign, you finish in detail with metal braces at the end. But now we're really seeing there is great benefit in uh, finishing and
0: detailing clear aligners. Oh, sure. You know, if you think about it, when Invisalign came about, it was from Kessling and the positioner, right? So, I mean, people used to use the positioners for sort of that settling and bite finishing. So I think it makes sense.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I've even said these in-house aligners have replaced the positioner. There really isn't a need for that anymore.
0: So can I ask, just because I'm geeking out here a little bit, what printers do you use?
1: So we're Sprint Ray. We've been happy with it. So I'll tell you, I always like to give plugs to people who have been so helpful to me. So we took Jason Cope's course. And Jason, you know, I I describe Jason as the epitome of ethics. When I have questions that really require a very straightforward mind, someone who's really going to really speak the truth, I always seek Jason's advice. I just, I find his core to be wonderful and he has never steered me wrong. So our staff went to his course and loved it. And frankly, we just copied the approach and the protocol that they did. So whatever he was practicing and and teaching, we just kind of copy it. But I'll tell you, if you do it, I recommend going with a staff member and even possibly going with an associate because... You know, we're very busy in our lives and it helped having an associate kind of get the ball rolling. I think if I was the one who had to start the process, I don't know if I would be able to have done it.
0: Yeah. It's a steep
1: learning curve, right? Yeah. But I'll tell you, once you get involved in it, you'll never go back. And it has been such a huge asset to our office. You know, patients come in all the time and again, relapse or, and just say, Hey, listen, we got this. This is very simple. This is very easy. Uh, Let's make a few aligners to get this right.
0: Okay. And can I ask what software you're using? ULab. ULab. Very happy with ULab. Okay. Very, very cool. I know you remember the Angle Society, also ABO certified. So, you know, what do those things mean to you?
1: Everything. I will tell you. So if we start with ABO, it is so important for the people who are listening. Really work toward becoming a diplomat. It is so important. It's so important to test yourself throughout your life. It's hard as a speaker to go up in front of the stage and to show your work. Hopefully, I'm doing good work. Hopefully, people like the cases that oh, I present. But that's where the ABO comes in. We really are trying to lead by example that is is really setting the professional standard. So I encourage every orthodontist, we should be 100% certified for ABO. And for those who are ABO certified, um, thank you. But I'd like you to get recertified, and I was very proud to get recertified. And so it's one of the great professional achievements in my life to be a diplomat and to be a recertified diplomat. And I hope when I am showing cases on social media or when I am writing articles, and even when I am approving manuscripts for the JCO, that we are using information and facts that are in accordance with ABO teaching. Really, it's a big part of what we are trying to do, even within the JCO
0: yeah. I just shared with you that I'm up for recertification this year. I'm sort of just getting the process going. And I think it's sort of gotten a little bit like streamlined where you used sure. to have to present some additional cases, but everything can be done online. I think after everything COVID, will be right? done online. Yeah. It'll take yeah. a few
1: hours to take the test. Yeah. So you really want to set aside a day, but I remember the feeling of being so proud of myself, completing the recertification and passing and going, this was a really good thing to do. I encourage everyone to do it. I'm very proud of our American board. That's awesome. And I am not a member of the Angle Society, but very curious about it. You would be in the same society, the same North Atlantic Society with me, and we would love to have you, and I would love to sponsor you. Oh, wow. So the Angle Society was such a dream come true. You know, I had the connection with Bob Nishroff and Steve Lindauer and Esther Tufekci, you know these are three of the great orthodontists and teachers and um, they're in Virginia yeah. yeah and they are so wonderful so i had the opportunity to join and to submit my cases and to present research and actually the research that i did for the angle society really got me on a path to do a lot of my own clinical research so it was a huge step in adjusting my career path, so I'm a huge proponent of angle. We have a very nice group, a lot of orthodontists from Florida, and we are just a very happy. Hardworking group. I am very lucky to be an Engel member.
0: So, if I understand correctly, there's like different chapters throughout the U.S. Yeah, That's how ba- it works. But yeah, there are different chapters based
1: on uh, where you live. You don't have to follow the rules exactly. There are people who live in a certain region who are members of a component outside of that region. Okay. In Virginia, and then in Florida, you'd be part of the North Atlantic, which is really a a southeast. A version
0: so for those who might be interested in joining the angle society the process is basically you would be sponsored by a current member somebody then, would have to
1: invite you yeah, and then sponsor you and then you'd have to be in practice for a number of years and you'll have to present research original mm-hmm. research and then you'll have to showcase this. so it's kind of like an abo plus research yeah that's intense um, it, it is but don't be intimidated and actually yeah. i say it's like the yankees like everybody's in the hall of fame <laughs> but you're sitting in a room and you're going oh my gosh everybody here is a chairperson. Everybody here is the world's greatest. And I think a lot of U.S. orthodontists will learn very quickly that orthodontics is pretty exceptional outside of the U.S. I think sometimes we think that we are the greatest as U.S. orthodontists, but truth be told, what they're doing outside the U.S. is pretty amazing. And to sit next to these legendary orthodontists and get to know them and get to meet their families, because at these meetings, You do see their families and everybody travels together and talks together, you'll have dinner together. So the friendships, believe it or not, at the Engel Society are the best. So I think people are intimidated by it, but they shouldn't be, and it is worth the effort.
0: Neil, thank you so much. Definitely want to look more into it. This sounds, again, very intriguing to me. I'd love to chat, I know we keep teasing this, but about some clinical pearls. fire away. I had the pleasure of attending your AAO lecture this year in Chicago. You You know, packed house as always, very impactful lecture. Thank Thank you. Just to talk about maybe some of the pearls you've given throughout the years, JCO and whatnot. I think you're known for bracket flipping. Sure. Right? Sure. Sort of give us the basics on bracket flipping. Yeah. So I mean, I love sharing clinical pearls. I think
1: it's hard to retain a lot of information from a lecture. I always tell people that at the beginning, but I always take a lot of pride when I put together a lecture and give that lecture that it should be very easy to sit through this talk and really take home a lot of information you shouldn't have to write it down. And one of the techniques I talk about is bracket substitution. So using a bracket intended for one tooth and using it on a different tooth for a different purpose. Now some of this stuff's going to get outdated now because brackets are becoming customized with 3D printing, with Cloen and then obviously LightForce and other brackets that are coming at braces on demand and so forth. Mm-hmm. But um, for orthodontists who are using stock brackets and the majority of us are, I will sometimes use brackets in different positions to get the prescription that I want. And the classic challenge is torque, right? So if you want to get torque on a canine, uh, one of my favorite things to do, particularly for a canine substitution case, so if a patient's missing both their laterals and we want to hide those prominent canine roots, I will use central incisor brackets on a substituted canine. Mm, so interesting. if you have bilaterally canine substitution, you're missing your upper twos. My bracket prescription on substituted three to substituted three is 1111. All four central incisor brackets, very easy to learn. And that simple approach will hide that prominent root Gives you that nice broad arch form because if those canine roots are prominent, the arch form looks very narrow. And it's one of the simplest tricks to establish nice torque on those canines.
0: Very cool. And I know it's not just limited to the upper anterior teeth, too. Like I've seen cases for, you know, various premolars and such that. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, you know, the challenge that people always struggle with is canine
0: substitution, but
1: also like impacted canines. So the lower second premolar has 17 degrees of. Buckle root torque, 17 degrees of negative root torque, right? Torque moving the root outside of bone. So buckle root torque. So a lot of times when we have a palatally displaced canine, so this is not a substitution case. This is a case where you had a pally displaced canine and you're really trying to bring that tooth into the arch and that root is dragging behind. And you want to get that root to come forward. You can use a lower second premolar bracket mm. properly oriented so the post is gingival. We're not changing it. We want that 17 degrees of buckle root torque and we put it on the canine and that is a great way to add buckle root torque. Anybody who has failed to establish proper torque on a pally displaced canine will quickly see that tooth relapse, sometimes even into a crossbite, which can be very frustrating. Yeah. Uh, try using a lower second premolar bracket properly oriented on a palatally displaced
0: canine. Interesting. So while we're on the topic of lower premolars here, yeah. I know you have posted about repositioning of brackets and the lower fours for me, it's like no matter how much mesial angulation in the bracket I do, I need more. This is the beauty of social media. You know, I think, you know, social
1: media has definitely aspects of it that are challenging and stressful. Obviously, the bullying and sometimes the negativity and is always hard. But the learning is so rapid. And yeah. uh, Jenny Gion, who was a resident at the time, I believe, at UCLA, but she posted her theory on why we are having problems With proper root angulation on the lower first premolars. And she talked about premolar anatomy. And she talked a lot about the unusual aspect of the mandibular first premolar anatomy. And I just remember reading her post and it blew my mind. I emailed her right away, said, I gotta write an article, I you know, and and we wrote one together, and I had this graphic designer create an illustration, but the truth is a lot of times we throw that root into a mesial position. In fact, a good rule of thumb that I teach my staff is rarely are you ever changing that slot on your lower fours and lower fives from parallel to the floor. So your lower fours and fives almost disregard the tip that appears in the mouth. Interesting. Just keep those roots parallel. And I think we're the ones who actually make the lower fours non-parallel, trying to lift up that depressed mesial marginal ridge, and you almost can't look at the mesial half of a mandibular first premolar. So don't trust your eyes. The simple rule of thumb is for your lower fours and fives, that slot should be parallel for the majority of cases.
0: Great, I love it. Let's talk about maxillary laterals and other frequently repositioned tooth. Uh, Any tips on those?
1: Well, you know, I think what I've really learned The lateral is the most individualistic tooth. And I always tell the women who are in my office, the the patients, the moms or the adolescent girls, I say, listen, that tooth is so important to me. To me, like that is the smile. That tooth, more than any tooth, the lateral incisor will make your smile. You know, we're trained to have a lateral step in and a lateral step up. But Mm -hmm. I actually tell you not to do that. And this really probably came from Tom Pitts and Stu Frost. But I want that lateral to be labial, to be outward, and I want that lateral to be longer. And if it is smaller than the central or if it is shorter than the central, it is just by an infinitesimal small amount. It really should have a very small lateral step. So I like labial and longer laterals, and particularly if the lateral is narrow. If you bring it out and bring it down, it will look less diminutive. So my favorite trick on a lateral is more of a finishing and detailing trick where almost my final finishing and detailing step is always to bring the lateral out and the lateral down. Now, I'm always happy with the smiles, but the cases where I wish I could have maybe done a little bit differently is where I didn't quite get the lateral length the way I want. And when the centrals dominate the smile, the smile just looks a little too young for me. And when the laterals are long and forward, it's a very elegant smile.
0: Yeah, Interesting, because I tend to level the gingival margins and then maybe recommend some cosmetics. Which
1: I think is still fine. You know, Aaron Mullen, who is one of the people I just love so much, and I love following along with his family travels all on Facebook. But Aaron will do that, and he'll do bonding. So he'll bring the laterals in position. But he likes the look of a longer lateral, and he has no problem bonding. I believe he uses Herculite. He'll do a cosmetic bonding to get the length that he needs. So he'll do kind of a combination of both techniques, get the margins, but
0: also get the length, too. Super interesting. Besides some clinical pearls, I'd love to talk about some life pearls. And I know you've been speaking a lot on humility recently, right? Sort of debunking that mindset, sort of fake it till you make it when you come out of residency.
1: That was the talk in Chicago. It was definitely an emotional talk. It was a lecture that I think was 20 years in the making. And I sent a nice message to the AAO committee board who chooses lectures and chooses topics thanking them for this. It was very interesting that they just happened to choose that topic for me. So the world's kind of aligned to give that talk. But I think my great failure was that I was just bravado. I think sometimes when you are trying to kind of create a shield for protection because maybe school is challenging. Maybe you don't want to let on that you're having a harder time than you might be. Maybe you just don't have a grasp of the material the way you need to. We create a bravado of fake it till you make it. Fake it to you make it's a very Western <laughs> approach. It's very American, this fake it till you make it. So I always tell people, you know, you want to face it to you ace it. The more you do this type of stuff, the more you realize that it's humility, not bravado, that really shows your experience and your skill set. And you have to ask people for help. And you have to say, how are you doing this? How are you doing this technique? What can I do better here? And I think when I was younger, I was just so afraid to ask for help. I was so afraid. Maybe it wasn't even fear. I think I was in my own mind. I just thought I was a racehorse and I just wanted to go. And I think the longer I practice, the more I realize the importance of self-reflection and yeah. improving And it is a major part of our practice. And I will tell you, orthodontists who lecture, who may have a big following, if they don't show that trait, I immediately shut down. They are out of my life because, you know, I hate to say this, but I was really a fool. I look back at that part of my life and going, I just did not understand how I needed to act. And you almost have to kind of really fail pretty hard. So as I said in my lecture, humility is taught by humiliation. But as you develop this trait, as you look inward, your work gets better. And it is the great irony of experienced practice.
0: Was there a certain pivotal moment for you that you felt like was that transition or was it just slowly over? Yeah. I mean, I shared the struggles in residency, but really it does take time. It
1: does take uh, repeated messages. I think the hardship of this is that it doesn't happen once. You look back at your life at all the times people or instances are giving you they're whispering to you, make changes, and you're just oblivious to it. And it really takes the world to scream at you to make these changes. I think the hardest part of mistakes, what, let's say it's a clinical mistake. The hardest part of a clinical mistake is that it took so many of those mistakes or on so many patients to say, hey, you know what? That's me who's causing this. It's not their genetics. It's not the surgeon's skill. It's my biomechanics or my lack of understanding that's causing this. And I think I wish it was one moment, and there certainly have been key moments and I shared, but I I do think it took me a while to hear the message. And I'll tell you this, and it sounds so silly, but maybe the men who are listening can understand. It helped getting married. It helped having children. Those things really helped with reflecting
0: and making changes. Yeah. I love that. Face it until you ace it. What a great line. Uh, I don't know if you came up with that, but you've got a lot of lines, Uh, colleagues, not competitors. Did you you come up with that?
1: Yeah. And, you know, listen, I, I think every orthodontist is very successful and, you know, I hate to talk about the money aspect, but we all do very well. And I think sometimes our pride and our ego gets in the way. And I think the way we act toward orthodontists who are up the street is awful. I always say, you know, when I give a lecture at a study club or at a meeting, I say, it means so much that everybody's here, but there are people who are not here, Because one person is here. I'm not here because the guy up the street is here. And so I'm not going to go to that meeting. And we need to really kind of change the mentality of the guy up the street. Because what I did is I created a local Facebook group of all the orthodontists in Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. We have over 600 orthodontists. Every Friday, we have to share family photos. And I think when people realize that the person up the street, the guy or gal they're just like us. They have kids. This image that we create of this Mm -hmm. competitor is really in our own mind. And we look for reasons to reinforce it. So if we have a case come into our office that they're struggling with, or maybe they have a disgruntled parent, we immediately use that to reinforce our prejudices. But we have to really work past that because we are all very similar. We all have some great cases. We all have some cases that we've struggled on. We all do a lot of things well. We all do some things that are inappropriate. I really... Hope that I think if you can form a good relationship with the orthodontists around you, you will really enjoy practice and you will appreciate their support because you will need it one day.
0: Yeah, well said. I'm also a big believer that your biggest competitor is yourself.
1: Heck yeah, yeah. And. Well, I tell people there's no room on our schedule. Nobody is affecting anybody else's practice. It's just not the case. And people will say, well, you can say that now because you've been practicing for 15, 16 years. But the truth is, your work ethic, your hours, your fees, your insurance carriers your genuine approach, those are the things that are going to affect your practice. But having an orthodontist up the street, we have about seven orthodontists within one or two miles of my practice and everybody does very well. So I don't think you should worry about that. And I think you're right. Just focus on improving your own work. And as you do, you know, your reputation and your momentum, we talked about momentum
0: that takes over. When we come back in just a moment we get Neil's perspective on some recent orthodontic trends and his thoughts on the importance of conservative care. Stay with us, you're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast comes from CasTrac. Having a difficult time keeping a handle on all of your digital orthodontic appliances? Are team members becoming stressed and overwhelmed? More importantly, are negative patient interactions occurring because their appointments have to be rescheduled or they show up and their cases aren't ready? Well, CasTrack is the solution. CasTrack is the ultimate digital orthodontic tracking software. Track in-house aligner production and analytics, as well as other digital commercial clear aligners and fixed appliances, such as Invisalign, Angel Aligners, Lightforce, and Embrace, to name a few. The subscription is month-to-month and can be stopped at any time. Head over to castrackortho.com to schedule a demo today. That's C-A-S-T-R-A-C-K-Ortho.com. And we're back to our conversation with Dr. Neil Kravitz. Neil, I'd love to chat about some recent trends in orthodontics, sort of get your two cents on them. One of the big things I see a lot is the rise of dental service organizations, DSOs, orthodontic service organizations, OSOs. What's your thought on corporate dentistry? Sure,
1: so I started my career in a corporation. I worked seven years in a corporation. It was a small corporation, and then it got bought out by a large corporation. And I'm grateful for that. You know, I was obviously a tough transition out of residency. So I'm very grateful for the owner to have given me that job. And I actually walked into a already established, very busy practice as the only orthodontist. (laughs) I was 26 or 27 years old and seeing 150 patients a day on day one. You know, there are things that I learned. And I definitely learned the business aspect of it. But I will tell you, I really had to rewire. Years ago, I said, this is not how I want to be as an orthodontist. And I had to rewire and just decide to be different with how I was practicing. And as much as I appreciated the responsibility that I was given and the ownership, people who have been given corporate associate positions know that you are given the keys to a home. Mm-hmm. It's really a remarkable feeling for a young doctor. You do learn some bad habits, and the bad habit is that collection is king. And And people can argue that, but it's really, that is how it is, because a corporation has to make profit. Every appointment, every consult has to be a profitable appointment. Your bosses are not orthodontists, or uh, they're not really orthodontists anymore. They're lawyers and businessmen, and they're going to be talking to you about collection and EBITDA and case starts. And what happened was, I judged myself based on those numbers, so I would be told, Deal. You need to make $10,000 a day. And then I would say, okay, well, I'll make $30,000 a day because the average guy can make 10 a day. I can make, I'm not average, I'm much better. And then I would Judge myself based on these numbers. So if I was making a lot of money or starting a lot of patients, well, I must be the best or the greatest. And again, this is where all the bravado and misunderstanding occurred. And then I just said, this is not being a good orthodontist. So I have no problem if people sell. I I work so hard. I work seven days a week. I work so hard. So if someone is able to sell and spend time with their family and live the life that they want to live, I think that is wonderful. But I'm not a supporter of corporate dentistry or orthodontics. And I think there is a tendency for corporations to focus on collection. And we have such an opportunity with DSOs and OSOs, which are about 17 to 20% of our practice of all orthodontics in the US Mm -hmm. to really do things properly and teach orthodontics properly. And unfortunately, I'm not sure that that is being done. And there are very good aspects of corporate orthodontics, and I think a lot of people are doing things properly. But I don't know if somebody who is selling their practice at 40 and is out of the picture a few years later quite understands what is happening to that practice. And my experience is that there is some good But there are some things that I wish were a little bit different. I know this is a difficult conversation, and I don't mean to offend anybody. Boy, I have made too many mistakes in my life to be critical of anybody. So I am not critiquing anybody. But I am possibly bringing up a challenging topic. And I want to talk about challenging topics today of our corporations practicing appropriately. And I believe that they are – Bordering, you know, really approaching that line. And I think in many ways they are becoming too focused on collection. And again, I have some ability to make these comments because I spent seven years at a corporation. And I also have a lot of regret as I opened up my own private practice about how I practice. Now, patients had a good experience with me. I had great rapport and I still, I'm able to retreat them, but I don't know if I was doing good orthodontics. And um, I heard a line from Jim McNamara where he said, you'll know if you're a good orthodontist five years out of practice. Hmm. And I will say, I don't know if I was a good orth, I think I'm doing really good work now. I hope people like the work that I put uh, put out there, but I don't know if I was five years out and I really had to commit To being a good orthodontist. And regrettably, I think I always had rapport and I always was very genuine, but I was too focused on business.
0: I think you've said some really interesting and provocative things. And I hope,
1: and I'm sorry, and and again, I do apologize. I don't mean it to be hurtful.
0: No, I think you just want to have an open dialogue and conversation. And unfortunately, sometimes it does become profits over patients, even if maybe that's not the intention. But, you know, it's interesting. We were having some work done on our home yesterday, and, you know, a contractor there was lamenting that you know, it seems like nobody really cares about their reputation anymore and doing good work. And I think there's so much importance to that. And you alluded to it. Yeah, I think
1: the older doctors who sell maintain that. By the way, I just, I worry about the people who sell very quickly. And I will tell you, it's an interesting idea. And I hope the pendulum swings back a little bit.
0: Another thing you've talked a little bit about on social media, I've seen you talk about is treating very young patients, right? Sure. Yeah. This is a, a challenging topic, right?
1: And, and I think it shouldn't be challenging. And I think what's happening with early treatment is a real movement toward Orthotropics. Now, orthotropics, for the orthodontists who are listening or the parents who are listening, is a discredited philosophy from the 1980s invented by John Mew. You'll hear the term mewing on social media where people shove their lower jaw forward to take a Better image uh, yeah, on a profile? British Orthodox. Yeah, British right? Orthodox. Well, he was. He was, was. de licensed. So, the idea of orthotropics is that the environment is the key determinant of malocclusion. So, it's not genetics, it's not your mom's bigger teeth or your dad's smaller jaw. They believe that environment rules, and if we can alter the environment, we can alter biology. Now, there's probably some aspects of truth. It's probably like a lot of important social and cultural conversations that are going on in our country right now. But I think there's some aspects of truth. We all know that if you are a thumb sucker, you're going to stretch the premaxilla. A lot of those mm-hmm. patients actually end up eating upper bicuspid extractions during comprehensive treatment because they've really created a class 2 skeletal pattern. We also know if you're a mouth breather, you'll create an adenoid facies with a high angle and a narrow arch palate. So we definitely know that the environment plays a role. Nobody's arguing that. But I think the claims are sensationalized. I think they take things a little bit too far. And genetics is what causes the majority of malocclusions. That's not debatable. And what happens with orthotropics is this need to start treating at a very young age, an obscenely young age three, four years old with expanders and really claiming that we can really change someone's genetic potential, which uh, we can do it just a little bit. I think the longer you practice, the more you have very realistic expectations about what you can do to someone's skeleton in the absence of orthognathic surgery. So what happens now is we have this whole movement in airway, which is no different than the TMJ movement of the 80s and 90s, where... People are doing expansion on three- and four-year-olds. What a ridiculous idea. You know, I have a three-year-old, and it is impossible for me to give her five milliliters of Advil when she has a fever. (laughs) Uh, This idea of doing expansion on a patient whose maxilla hasn't even stopped growing is foolish. And anybody who is hearing this, whether you are an orthodontist or an attorney, no one in our profession supports this type of approach. So pediatric dentists or orthodontists, this is not the standard of care. This is actually so far beyond the standard of care. There are no papers accepted in orthodontic journals that approve of this methodology. And this is done in the aspect of over-medicalization for revenue. So this all goes into sleep medicine and obstructive sleep apnea and the bigger issue. And this is a sensitive topic here where it's almost become like a social movement rather than a science movement. But it is important to remember that we are treating someone's child and to put an expander on a three and a four, or even a five-year-old, five, five or six, you know, but three and four
0: and five, right. these are way too young. Let me ask you this: so you mentioned the standard of care. I would think the AAO recommends an evaluation by age seven. Yeah, sort of what I learned—that's that, that, on that, their website, absolutely. So th- that's what you would consider at this point, sure, maybe seven, sure, eight, nine. Sure,
1: right. So the central incisors and the first molars have erupted. That's established the occlusal plane. The maxilla has completed the majority of transverse growth at that time, but the palate is very soft. So it's an ideal. Time to begin maxillary expansion. That is the time that we recommend it. So H7, and I'll tell you in my practice, I actually like eight to nine as an expansion rather than H7. I think a lot of times if we expand at seven, we end up having to do a second expander a little bit later. So I think we expand a little too early. So in my office, I like eight to nine. I used to say early third grade. Now I look like closer to fourth grade. It okay. works a little bit better. The kids are a little bit better. I can get more expansion. I can guide those canines in. This movement is a dangerous movement. It is part of the airway movement that was a British-generated movement with the Muse. It's now very popular in Australia. It's done by pediatric dentists who are selling myofunctional appliances, and it's inappropriate, and it's dangerous. And I actually want to say this to like the world who might be listening. Yeah. The FDA is starting to get involved with orthodontic appliances. And there was a recent lawsuit from the general dentist who used an AGA appliance, which is an expander on an adult patient. And of course, if an orthodontist put an expander on an adult patient, we would lose our license because obviously you cannot expand an adult patient. And what happened was and she unless lost- Unless
0: it was like a SARP or a Marpy or Sure, something. sure,
1: sure. Non-surgical expansion. Right, I'm so right. sorry. Thank you for yeah. clarifying. Right, But you can't just put this in and think that you can change the bones. Of course, the pressure put from the expander put pressure on the teeth, not the bones. And obviously this woman lost all of her teeth. And it was the largest, and I'm actually writing a case uh, study on it for the AJO. And I speak to this woman probably weekly, but it was the largest dental lawsuit outside of one that had a fatal injury, right? So from anesthesia. Mm. So, but what's happening now is the FDA is looking at criminal charges against the lab who sold this appliance, and also the man who invented this appliance? So currently, the FDA is not involved with orthodontic products. We, we have the FDA who is loosely involved, requires you know five ten k clearance for three D printed occlusal splints and for clear aligners. That's the involvement: clear aligners and three D printed occlusal night guards. That's where the FDA has been involved with orthotic appliances. Boy. Be careful if you start putting an expander in on a three- or Mm four-year-old, and don't be surprised if the FDA starts looking at pediatric dentists and orthodontists using this appliance inappropriately, no different than a general dentist using the appliance inappropriately. So if you deviate from the standard of care, there are consequences. I don't advocate it be very careful. And we love our job so much, right? So Mm -hmm. it's very easy for me to tell you whatever I want to tell you in a consult room and you to believe it because I love my job so much that it will come out with such passion. But if we really like to look parents in the eye and say, I'm going to treat you like I treat my family, as we all like to say, then be conservative because if it's your kid, you're not going to be doing stuff on your kid. You're not going to be over-treating your own kid. If we are going to look a parent in the face and say, I'm going to treat your son the way I would treat my son, well, then don't do something. Then don't do it because we are over-treating and over-medicalizing and over-diagnosing and over-prescribing and we're doing it For money, because the best treatment for young children is no treatment. The old line that all over-treatment is successful from the doctor's perspective. But I will tell you, if you over-treat, you will start causing permanent damage. If you are a young orthodontist hearing this, listen to me very carefully. My worst cases, my greatest regrets, the cases that I wish I could refund the parent in full and I'd write that check in a heartbeat. And I'm so grateful they love me, but I don't love myself as their orthodontist were cases where my intentions were good but I overtreated the child. I overtreated and caused root resorption or I failed to see the need for extractions. I just needed to be more patient and grow up a little bit and learn a little bit about that patient before getting them involved. Your worst mistakes will not be from cases you did not start right away, but for cases you started too soon and overtreated and exhausted them and caused permanent damage. Here's a good rule, whether you're a physician or a dentist, never cause permanent damage. You cannot.
0: Certainly, I love the sentiment on conservative care. But to circle back to something you said before, maybe just to push back a little bit, I know you said treat the patient like you would treat your own family member, but obviously, certain people might perceive that differently and how they might want to treat their own kids, too, to be sure. fair. No, right? I, well, yeah,
1: right. Yeah. So the counter argument is that they really believe this, right? And, that, yes. and they do. I mean, they're, versus they're, they're, they're
0: profits, right? right?
1: Right. So you're right. You're right. So, and, and I apologize. If, I, I know we're talking about really tough stuff. It's actually hard. Yeah, it I'm nervous really to talk stuff. about <laughs> this stuff, but I hope it's okay. And I, I hope it, you know, I know there may be some bad but I want to talk about it. And I hope it's coming from a genuine place. I think it's important to have these conversations. I think sometimes the people on the other side, my position, aren't given the microphone, believe it or not. And I think it's important. I think you're starting to see this in general, where people are starting to stand up on behalf of science. So I think What I would say is, yes, they probably do believe what they're doing is 100% accurate. I have no doubt. But we're talking about your oath. We're talking about ethics. We're talking about what is appropriate. I think we forget that we are treating someone's little child. And when you are treating someone who is young, you will achieve more by doing less.
0: Well said we'll end the tough topics on that before we go would love to learn a little bit more about you and your hobbies talked about the columbia lions before understand you're a big caps
1: fan big caps fan you know we've struggled the last few years but uh, winning the stanley cup in uh, 2018 was such a high for me i'll tell you a funny story so i remember they're playing in game five and my friend calls me up he was the best man at my wedding we were friends since high school and he is an attorney practicing overseas, and he gives me a call. He says, I'm in town. Let's get together and watch game five. And I said, I am so nervous, and I have a ritual, and I cannot see you tonight because I have to pace around my kitchen table and do the superstitions that I have, and if we start losing, I'm going to kick you out of the house. (laughs) You know, The next day driving to work after the Caps won, I was in my car, listening to the highlights, just crying, crying, crying. We parked at a red light. Someone asked me to roll down my window and uh, they said, are you okay? I go, I'm listening to the highlights from the Stanley Cup. And then they understood. So it was a very emotional day for everybody in Washington, DC. The Nats won the World Series the next year. So a very good moment to be, you know, Tampa's had some great success. Um, So it was a very special year or two in DC and very fun to be part of it. Super
0: cool. And I saw this morning that you went for an early morning run along the bay.
1: Yep. So you run? every morning? Every morning. I try to get about eight to 10 miles in if I can. I'm, I'm I'm a slow runner, but I like to run. I love to run when I'm in a new place. It helps me really learn the city. So if I'm in a different city, particularly if I am outside the U.S., I definitely like to run around. I really get a good grasp of the city. Occasionally I do run into tough areas and I have to redirect, but it's one of my favorite things to do. I enjoy those early morning so runs. So
0: I'm not a runner, but I imagine there's like an app, right? Or something sure. for runners. Is that what you use? Yeah.
1: yeah so I have a goal that I'd like to try to do every month if I can. Last year I was really running a lot and I kind of overtrained. I actually was not able to do the Marine Corps marathon because I was running a little bit too far. So now I'm running a little bit behind my pace, but I hope to peak at the right time.
0: Perfect. Neil, it's been a fantastic podcast today. Honor to have you on and also to have you in the Tampa area thank you so much for coming down. A lot of great topics today, important things to learn about and important conversations too. Before we go, just want to mention, we talked about the Journal of Clinical Orthodontics. It'd mean a lot to the specialty if you do subscribe. Thank you. Uh, So please everyone check that out. The website for that, I guess, is JCO?
1: Yeah, yeah. JCOonline.com.
0: Okay, perfect. Also, you can check Neil on uh, social media. He's on Facebook, been very involved in Twitter, I see. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: So I pulled off Twitter recently, very involved with social media, but Primarily on Facebook. Facebook. Okay.
0: And uh, how about YouTube? Are you still doing your YouTube channel? Yeah.
1: So it's one of my goals this summer is to pick up those YouTube videos and I'll start to put out more videos this summer.
0: Okay. Yeah. And it's at Kravitz Ortho, I believe, if you want to follow him. Neil, thanks so much. Cheers to you, my friend. Well, cheers our coffee here. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Huge honor. (laughs) Thanks. That's all for this episode of the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. If you're a fan of the show, be sure to subscribe or follow Illuminate on your favorite podcast app. Also, I'd appreciate if you could rate our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. A very special thanks to our sponsors for this episode. That's the Outliner Intensive Fellowship and KazTrack. As always, this podcast would not be possible without the Illuminate team. That's Skylar Adler. Joined by Johnny Mitchell on the mixing console and Tom O'Grady on the Fender Rhodes electric piano. Thanks so much for listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. To hear exclusive outtakes, Suggest a guest or sponsor an episode, head over to IlluminateOrthoPodcast.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Chris Setta signing off. Don't skip to that next podcast quite yet. You've just found our hidden bonus content. So my last podcast was with Sheldon Salins, and I know Sheldon loves rap. I don't know your musical taste, but I feel like it might be rap is that true
1: (laughs) well i think i think anybody are you a rock guy uh, yeah
0: i like everything do you have a favorite song or two or or artist i don't know if i have a favorite i I do like everything
1: in in my music library i have from rap to country to even just instrumental i know it sounds silly but i kind of like it so uh and i will play it at different parts of my run kind of how i'm feeling and kind of where i want to zone (laughs) out so so i like it all i have it all in there but i don't have a favorite one.
0: eclectic Okay.